We are back in Galatians, and we are in chapter 5, and we are in three verses today, just three verses for our passage today. Uh, Some of you are thinking, man, that's great, because we'll be out of here quick, and we can get to our fellowship lunch. That's all right. (laughs) That's what you, I know, that's what you think. It's chapter 5 of Galatians, verses 13, 14, and 15. In just a minute, we're going to read it together. It'll be up on the screen for you. Um, but in these three verses, there is a lot. As, as Paul, the Apostle Paul, often does, he packs a lot of punch into uh, very few words. He obviously chooses his words wisely as God inspired him to write these. So these being the very words of God, we need to pay heed uh, and give close attention to what he has to say in these three short verses. These are sort of a transition into uh, the ending of the letter, even though there's a whole other chapter after this. We had said that Paul really starts this letter by being very personal. Remember, he was defending his apostleship and the, the authority to preach the true gospel. And then it was positional, where we, he talked all about justification and how our position before God has changed uh, in our salvation. Now he's getting very practical. And uh, we will see this week, and then even when we get into the next few verses about the Holy Spirit within us, what does it look like to live practically as free people? So we sing this song, Jesus Calls Us, because in the first verse that we'll see in just a second, he says, Brethren, you have been called. Called to freedom. But the question for this morning is very simply, called to be free, to do what? And that's really what he addresses. It's most important that we understand we've been called to freedom, and that's the message Paul's been given all throughout this letter, but free to do what? And that really is the question. You know, uh, many of you would be able to, to pull out one of these, and it is a driver's license. Most of you have one of these. Um, and you could pull it right out. And so I'm not going to ask you to do it, but wouldn't it be fun to kind of pass these around and look at the pictures of those uh, around you? You know, why is it most of the time we really don't seem to like, I really look like a big thug right here in, in my picture. And so it doesn't, it doesn't uh, bid well for me if I ever get stopped um, to show them this because I don't think we'd be off on a, a good foot with that kind of picture. But what is this? This, it says New Jersey, auto driver license. So this is a driver's license, right? We've all seen it or we have one. But what does this allow you to do? I mean, it's pretty simple, right? But you get this driver's license, right? At a young age, you get this driver's license, and it gives you license or freedom to do what? To drive, right? Now the question is, and this kind of leads right into what the Apostle Paul is trying to teach us, is that when you get this driver's license, are you then free to drive however you would like? Now driving around New Jersey, we say there's a lot of people that would think that, right? But it gives you the license or the freedom or the liberty to drive. Right? So legally, the state of New Jersey says, you have one of these, you are free to drive. 
But yet, there are still boundaries. Is that right? There are still qualifications to this. You have the freedom to drive, to go anywhere you want. But there are stipulations. If you've ever noticed driving down the road, there are these nice little white signs with black numbers on it. And it says speed limit. Have some of you maybe noticed those, right? Right? Those, those signs that suggest what speed limit you're supposed to go, right? Right? But, but isn't that sort of what Paul is saying is that his warning to us this morning is very simply in these three verses, you have been called to freedom. You have been given a license and you've been given this liberty. So live it, live as free people, but don't misuse that freedom. Because that's what was happening in the church in Galatia. Remember what's going on as we have these false teachers who are saying the true gospel is not only salvation by grace through faith in Christ alone, but it's that plus works. You need to be circumcised, become a full Jew before you can actually become a full Christian. That's what we've been talking about as we go through it. And, but he's saying, look, you've been called to freedom. Why would you want to drag those chains of bondage of the the Mosaic law back on, you've been set free from that. You've been given a, a license. But here, he really takes uh, important words to tell us what we've been given freedom to do. And it's really an, an important reminder for all of us that we are called to live a life of freedom. And all that that means. We're supposed to enjoy it and come and, and, and worship and not be bound in legalism on one side of the coin where we're so caught up in in uh, all of the do's and the don'ts and especially the don'ts and what we're not supposed to do that we get so legalistic and dogmatic about it that we forget about the christian liberty and the freedom that we have but then he kind of shows us the other side of the coin this morning and there's this this um this great theological word, antinomianism, which simply means being like a libertine, where you just say that you are free to go and do whatever you want. And it's like taking a driver's license and saying, there are no ramifications to what I do. There's no set guidelines. There's no structure to this. There's no laws involved. I am free to do whatever, whenever. So that's the other side of the coin. But here is why the... Um, The title for the message this morning is very simply, A License to Love. Now, we're not given an official license by the state of New Jersey to love. But what Paul is saying is that through Christ, you have been given freedom. But here's what the freedom is for. You have been given freedom to love. That's what we're supposed to use our Christian freedom and liberty and license for, is to love. You know, since the days of Adam and Eve, there has always been this struggle for authority. Who has authority and control over my life? Right? Deep down, that is the essence of our sinful nature. This morning, he calls it, Paul calls it the flesh, our sinful nature. But it is this desire to wrest control from the hands of God, our Creator, and have it for our very own. Don't we, in essence, all want that, right? In our sinfulness, 
these bodies we still live in, according to the fleshly desires and lusts that we are wanting to be in control. So there has always been this authority struggle. But what's interesting is if you look through church history, it's been said that about every 500 years or so, there is a power struggle. There is sort of a questioning of what is the authority in the church, specifically. Not only in the world at large, but in the church. Who has the authority? So if you were to go 500 years back from now, where would you be in church history? We would be at what we call the Great Reformation. About 500 years ago was the Great Reformation. Martin Luther started, we know the whole story, right? And how he posted his 95 thesis about what he wanted to see changed in the Catholic Church, the only church at the time, not wanting to create a whole new church or denomination or a whole new segment. He wanted to reform the church at the time. He loved the church. He was a leader in the church and a teacher. But what did he see? He saw a problem with where the authority was. was. It was lying with the church. And he said, no, our authority comes from Scripture. It is from God through the Scripture, through the Word. And that's what he stood for. So there was this great struggle 500 years ago about authority. If you go 500 years before that, around the year 1000, we have what we call, not the Great Reformation, but the Great Schism. It was the dividing point in church history between the East and the West. And when we got the Roman Catholic Church separating from the Orthodox Church in the East, the separation of East and West, and it was over authority. It was who was the Pope at the time. At the time, around the year 1000, about 500 years before the Reformation, there was basically five popes. There was one in the West in Rome, and there was four others. They were bishops in the East. And basically it came to a head where they excommunicated each other. And they said, you're excommunicated. No, you're excommunicated. I'm in charge, I'm in charge. Right? And I mean, there's so much you can get into. It's really interesting if you read it. But there was this great power struggle. Who has the authority in Christendom? 500 years before that, we see a person called Gregory the Great, one of the first church leaders. And there was this struggle about who was in charge about the year 500 A.D., if you remember your history, was the beginning of what we would call the Middle Ages or the, the Dark Ages. So what's interesting now is that we are 500 years on from the Reformation and there is sort of still this idea of who has authority in Christendom? Is there really a universal church? Who has authority? But we need to remember for our purposes this morning that there always has been that power struggle, not on the outside, but in here. And so if you can put the passage up on the screen, we're going to read this together, these three verses. In Galatians 5, 13-15. You're going to see what Paul is saying. You've been given freedom not to take control of your life, 
for yourself, but for others. It is all about love. Look at what it says. For you were called to freedom, brothers. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh. But through love, serve one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. But if you bite and devour one another, watch out that you are not consumed by one another. See, there was this infighting and divisiveness and a disunity in the church. And it was all because of the false teaching, teaching the false gospel. So he was saying, why are you doing this to each other? He's saying, you've been given freedom, so don't bring back the... The, the chains of bondage of any longer to the law, but live as free people, but don't misuse your freedom. Because that was happening too. You had the legalists on one side, and you had others saying, well, we are free to do whatever, with no strings attached. And so he says in these three short verses, we have been given license and liberty and freedom, not for ourselves, but to love and to love one another. So let's go through these briefly in just a few minutes and look at what he has to say. There's going to be a a, a lot of verses up on the screen for you. You can write them down, look them up in your own Bible, but there's a lot of supporting Scripture that it's really important that we see this morning that really backs up what Paul is saying. A lot of it is from uh, his other writings, especially in Romans, but you're going to see how these other Scriptures really fit in to what he's saying in these three verses. So in verse 13... He says, you were called to freedom, only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh. So he's saying, don't think that you can say, I'm free to sin. You see that? It seems like obvious and simple, but it's a reminder that we all need. That we are not free to go and do whatever. It's, you know, it's often the case that we would see people that profess to be Christians They love the fact that they have freedom from Christ, but don't want to own that each and every day of their lives and allowing Him to be Lord over their lives. They love the freedom, but not the responsibility that comes with it. An interesting word in this this, um, verse is opportunity. In the ESV, he says, don't use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh. In the Greek, that word opportunity really is sort of like a militaristic term. It means sort of a base of operations. It's also used as a springboard. If you've ever gone swimming and you get on the diving board, what does that allow you to do? You, di- you dive, you jump on the end of the diving board, right? It allows you to get high and you kind of sort of have perspective over it and get you deep into the water. It's a springboard into the pool. Or in a, in a military term, that word op- opportunity is like, a base of operations where you kind of create your military base and from there you go out and you have your war campaign. He says, don't use your freedom as a negative base of operations or a springboard into the lust of the flesh. You see what he's saying? He's saying that is the wrong use of your freedom. In Judges 17.6, it says this. It says, in those days there was no king in Israel and everyone did what was right in his own eyes. God's been seeing it happen from day one. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. 
1 Peter 2.16 We are reminded and encouraged to live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. That's what Paul's saying too. He's saying don't use your freedom to cover up your sin and say, oh, it's okay that I continue in a life of sin because I am set free. Now let's make no mistake, those of us who have made a profession of faith in Christ and surrendered our hearts to Him and can say that we are truly saved, we have been set free from the bondage of sin that we are no longer slaves to sin. But yet, we still sin, don't we? Because we're not perfect. We still sin. But the idea is not to use our freedom as a rationale. Even we do it. Isn't it silly we do it with God? Yeah, it's okay. As a rationale to continue in a life of sin. We will all fall short. We will all uh, uh, you know, have a misstep and sin. And there are, some, there are those sins that might really, really tempt us and have a hold of us from time to time. But his point is, don't let your freedom be a cover-up for that evil. He's saying don't use it as a, a point of, uh, as a springboard into all kinds of lust of the flesh. Use your freedom wisely. It says in Romans 13, 14, Paul again, he's given words of encouragement. He says, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. Make no provision for it. You all know the sin or those sins that really trip you up. Paul is saying make no provision for it. Don't go there. Don't put yourself in the situation where you're going to fall and be tempted and then be tempted to rationalize away. Oh, I'm free and thank you, Lord, for setting me free and that you can continue in a life of sin. Paul says, no, that's not what it's about. But the other part of verse 13, he says, instead of using your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, he says, but... Through love, serve one another. And there's really the crux of it this morning. Serve one another in love. So that's the opposite. He's saying instead of using your freedom, listen, instead of using your freedom for selfish gain, use your freedom to serve and love one another. That's what he's calling to do. Remember, the people that were reading this letter, there was a lot of turmoil in their church because of the, the infighting. And the disunity and because of the false teachers and there were those that were following them and, 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 and struggling with what they should do. And he says, look at what you're doing. You're causing all kinds of strife in the body of the church. He says, this is not what you've been set free for. He says, brothers and sisters, you've been called for freedom. It is for freedom that we've been set free. To live as free people, but not to do this. This is what he's saying. You can picture him writing and say, this is not what you've been set free for. You're supposed to be loving and serving one another. So, more than just freedom to resist the temptations of our fleshly desires, he says we've been given a license to love. We've been given Christian freedom to love one another. Look at Philippians 2, 5-7. through A great picture of what it means to lay down your life. Philippians 2, 5-7. through Have this mind among yourselves which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, he's talking about Jesus now, 
though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. But he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. If we are Christians and Christ followers, then we're supposed to follow his example, right? He laid down his life for those whom he loved. We are to do the same thing. Romans 15, 2 and 3. Let each of us please his neighbor for his good, to build him up. For Christ did not please himself. See that? It's Paul saying it again. You are supposed to love your neighbor as yourself for their benefit, to encourage and build them up. That's what we're supposed to do as a church. Not having the mindset that we come and receive, but to come and give. Having servants' hearts for one another. And then in verse 14, moving on, he says, the whole law is fulfilled in one word. Now, yeah, there's more than one word here, but we know what he's saying. This one phrase. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. We've heard it many times. The Old Testament and the New Testament, God has always called His people, right? God has always called His people to obey Him and serve Him out of love. What does John 14, 15 say? If you love Me, you will obey My commandments. Right? Romans 13, 8. Owe no one anything except to love one another. For the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. That's what Paul is saying. Remember we say Galatians is kind of a a mini Romans? So here's Paul fleshing it out even more in Romans. He's saying, oh, nothing to anyone except to love. Because if you do that, you're fulfilling the law. Because all the law can be summed up in that. Love God, love others. Right? There's no provision there for self. Did you ever notice that? When Jesus says the greatest commandment is this, to love the Lord your God. Right? And also to love your neighbor as yourself. He doesn't say love yourself first. There's no provision there for self. It's love God and love others. It's outward focused. It's other focused. Right? We're no longer in bondage to the law. Romans 6.22 But now that you have been set free from sin and you have become slaves of God, you've transferred who you're slaves to. It used to be to sin and self. Now it is to God. He says the fruit you get leads to sanctification and its end, which is eternal life. You know, it's this interesting passage. You don't have to read it. It's not going to be on the screen. But in Exodus 21, God makes provision in the law for something really interesting. He says that if you are a slave, okay, this is if you want to write the, the reference on Exodus 21, he says, if you were a Hebrew slave, a slave to another Hebrew, after six years of servitude, on the seventh year, you'd be set free. That was the law. So you served as a servant, right, as a slave, for six years. In the seventh year, you're set free. But he says, if you love your master, if the slave says, I love my master, my family there, there's provision that the master it says, can basically put a hole in his ear within all, it says, as a mark. And it says, then the slave will be a slave to that master for, for the rest of his life, but it's done out of love. Isn't that cool? But it's done out of love. It's because the slave chooses himself and says, I want 
to be a slave to my master, I am doing it voluntarily and willingly. But it's all based on love. And that's what we have done. We are now slaves to God, Paul says, but it's all because of love. So we have been given this license to love and authentic Christian liberty and freedom. It produces in us self-control. self Wrapping this up now. Self-control, which means not giving in to the lusts of the flesh. We've been given a servant's heart to love one another and in submission to God. And finally in verse 15, look at the words that he chooses here. I hope it wasn't lost on you what he says. He says, if you bite and devour one another, watch out that you are not consumed by one another. Maybe you like to watch those nature shows where you see the lion, right? You see the lion chasing after the, the poor deer, gazelle, or whatever. And you just know how it's going to end. I mean, sometimes the gazelle gets away, right? But normally, the lion will get his prey. And then what happens? That's usually when you turn it off, right? <laughs> you see the, what? Some of you like, you watch that, do you? But it's like the thrill of that chase. But then what happens? There's a lot of gnawing there. And there's devouring and consuming. And there's biting. And that's what he's saying. That's like the image he's trying to draw up when he's writing this. He's saying, don't do that to one another. This is what you're doing. You're devouring one another. Because the church was divided and engaged in bitter strife there. And you know what happens when a church is locked in division and bitter strife? They lose their testimony to the world. We are called to be Christ's ambassadors, aren't we? Representatives in our community and the world around us for Jesus Christ. There's a great book I read many years ago called uh, Unchristian. And it was put out by the Barna Group. And they had done a survey of young people. There's even a video that went along with it. Very interesting. And they surveyed young people, like age, uh, I think, 18 to 30, something like that. And they were asking them very simple questions. They asked him about church and Christianity. He said, how do you, you know, what, do you, what are your thoughts about Christianity? And usually you'd see kind of their face kind of scowl, and they would have mostly negative things to say. And in the book, in their survey, it comes out that the world sees the church as too political, as homophobic, as always against something and not for something, that we're hypocritical. There's all these things they list. But you know what's interesting? That's when they talk about the church or Christianity. Then they ask the young people, well, what do you think about Jesus? And in the videos, you can see their, their eyes light up. And they perk up and they want to talk about Jesus. Oh, they like Jesus. They don't recognize Him as the Savior, as God. But they like what Jesus has to say. So they like the teachings of Jesus as laid out in the Holy Bible but yet they really have negative thoughts about Christ's church and His people. What a big disconnect there. So something, somewhere we are not being proper and right ambassadors of our Savior. And so therefore, Paul is saying, you have been called to freedom not to do what you, you want, not to have this License for a complete freedom with, with no boundaries or responsibilities, then you'll look like the rest of the world. Saying you've been called to freedom, 
to love one another. And as you're going to see, as we move on, we'll end with this. As you're going to see in the next verses, if you read ahead, the real missing link here, what we're missing in this idea of being servants for love for God, is the person of the Holy Spirit within us. And that's where Paul goes next, verses 16 and on. He talks about you have the Holy Spirit within you, giving you the power and ability to live the free Christian life. And that's the key. And that's the focus. Ezekiel 36 says, I, God says, I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes. That's what Paul is reminding us of. So, Paul is giving us really important words this morning in those three verses. He says, You have been called to freedom. That's true. But not freedom to give in to the lusts of the flesh. It's freedom to love and to serve one another. Freedom to love. We've been given a license to love. And it is a freedom that we should enjoy. But remembering the price that was paid for that freedom. So that moves us into the Lord's table as we take communion together as a church. And this is how we're going to end our service this morning, by taking communion. We do it as a reminder, right? God calls us through His Son, our Messiah, Jesus. He calls us to do this in remembrance of of him. So he says, as often as you get together, do this in remembrance of me. We know the story about Jesus and his disciples and what he did on the night before he was betrayed. And here's just a reminder why do we do this together? Why is it part of our fellowship? The word says, what Jesus says, take and eat. This is my body, which is given for you. When the Lord says this, what He's saying to us is that His body is not so much His any longer, but it is ours. So with His body, He gives us Himself, and He desires that we should take it. Because there is a blessedness in the fellowship right now of giving and receiving. It's a blessed giving because of who it is that gives. It is our Creator, and He comes here to give us what our soul needs. And what does He give? He gives us Himself. That is what we need. We need Christ Himself. And there is also a blessedness in the taking. Just as we receive in just a moment with our hands the bread and the cup, we hold it as our own. We take what Jesus is offering But the reminder to us is that it is a sense of freedom that we take this bread and this cup, but we do it in remembrance of the price to our Savior for that freedom. So if the men that are willing to come and and help serve our communion table this morning, if you would would come and join us as we uh, begin with the passing of the bread, I would just ask that as you hear the music play, and as we pass around the elements, the bread and the cup, just take a few moments 
uh, as we're passing it out to everyone here, just take a few moments to reflect upon your relationship with the Lord, the freedom that He has granted you through Christ, and what does that mean to you? How are you living out as freedom, as free people in Christ? And so, um, let me pray for us, and, uh, and then we will serve the bread and take that together. Let's pray. Father, we, we are blessed to be here together. We are blessed that you have shown us the way to this table through your word today. As you've reminded us about freedom, we, uh, we want to remember now what that freedom costs. And so you call us to do this in remembrance of you. And we recognize in a very reflective way the fact that you needed to go to the cross. And you did it for our sake. And so as we obey your command and do this in remembrance of you, Jesus, would you uh, stir in our hearts and move in our minds to to reflect upon those things that you're calling us to reflect on. What it means to be free in Christ and what it costs you. In Jesus' name. So I'd ask, Brother Michael, if you would pray for our bread this morning. Let's pray. Father, thank you for uh, the sacrifice of your son on the cross, Lord. We thank you uh, that um, uh, he went upon that cross, Lord, for our sins. Uh, Lord, uh, sacrificed his body because he loved us. We thank you, in Jesus' name. Amen. You were just handed a, a piece of bread, symbolic of the body for Lord Jesus that He gives to us. 
For it says, I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, he took the bread, when he had given thanks, he broke it, and he said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Let's eat together. Now, brother, if you'd be willing to pray for the cup this morning. Dear Lord, I, I think of the sacrifice of your son, your only son, who was brought down for us. Sacrifice for our sins, which I still don't understand, Lord. But I thank you every day, and especially today, for the sacrifice of this blood that we do now. In your name, amen. In the same way, he also took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he returns. Let's drink together. 